You're listening to audio from Queen City Church. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message will encourage you and offer practical steps for a relationship with God that keeps getting better and better. We are today in week three of a series that we're calling the greatest sermon of all time, where we are taking a deep dive study look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is the largest recorded teaching of Jesus in the Bible. It actually covers three entire chapters of the Bible, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. And some of the most famous things that Jesus ever said actually, actually come from this sermon. In fact, you don't even have to be a church person to know of some of the things that Jesus said in this sermon. In fact, help me out a little bit, just by show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of the golden rule? How many of you have ever heard of that principle that like treat others the way that you would want them to treat you? Yeah, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you by show of hands have ever heard of the Lord's Prayer? Yeah, I know for me growing up playing sports, I played uh, basketball and baseball, we would pray the Lord's Prayer before every game. We just do that. And so you don't have to be a church person to know the Lord's Prayer. How many of you by show of hands have ever heard the expression, turn the other cheek? Anybody ever heard that? Yep, Uh, Sermon on the Mount. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, only God can judge me? Okay, that, that is not the Sermon on the Mount, that's Tupac. I was just testing you. <laughs> just testing, make sure you're paying attention. Um, he does talk about judging, but he doesn't say that. That's Tupac. Um, now, the Sermon on the Mount is not just any old, normal, boring sermon. No, I believe with all my heart that this is the greatest sermon of all time. And here's what this sermon is all about. Here's the cliff notes or uh, if, if, you're, if you're Gen Z, uh, the, the, the spark notes of this sermon. And here, here's what this is about. The Sermon on the Mount is a king establishing his kingdom through his people. That is what this Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is all about. It's King Jesus coming on the scene and he's establishing a brand new kingdom through his people. And the big idea throughout this whole sermon is that the key to accessing the kingdom of God is repentance. That that's actually the key that unlocks this kingdom that he's here to bring. And that word repentance, it simply means to change your mind. That's what that word means. It means to change your mind, which then leads to a change in your direction. In other words, it's an inside out change. Here's what Jesus is saying in these three chapters of the Bible. He's bringing up all these different topics. And he's saying, I know in all these topics that you've been taught and that you think one way about these topics, but here's what I need you to do. I'm coming with a brand new kingdom and I need you to actually not think that way, but to think this way and to change your mind in such a deep way in your soul that it leads to a change in your direction and in your behavior. And that, that process, that process of repentance is actually this key to accessing this kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And in week one, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Beatitudes where Jesus, he challenges us to change our minds about where true lasting happiness is found. And then last week, we talked about salt and light, where Jesus, he challenges us to change our minds 
about where we actually find our identity. And then this week, if you're, te- if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, I've entitled the message something Jesus literally says six different times over the verses that we're gonna read today. Six different times he says this phrase straight from the text today. I wanna talk about this subject, but I say. Jesus six different times in the verses we're gonna read today says, but I say. And I wanna warn you straight off the bat, this is a theologically beefy message today. This is, this is a a lot of beef today, okay? Uh, There's absolutely no fluff in this message on Daylight Saving Sunday. I know I'm brave, but I'm telling you there's no fluff. I've got no stories for you. I've got no jokes, none, not a joke. There's not one joke coming. There's no illustrations, but here's what I do have. I got two hours of content, 48 Bible verses, and only 30 minutes to teach it. (laughs) So buckle up, make sure your seats and tray tables are in their full and upright position. Get excited, lean in, take some notes, and let's see what God wants to speak to us today, and then we're gonna respond. It's gonna be a great day. Are you with me, you with me, you with me? Okay, let's start Matthew chapter five. We're picking it up where we left off last week, Matthew chapter five, verse 17, where Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses and the writing of the prophets. We'll come back to that. No, I came to accomplish their purposes. I came to fulfill their purposes. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in this kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, which is the religious elite of that day, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's really important for you and I to know that when we read these verses from this Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is talking to a very diverse group of people However, the primary group that he would be talking to is Jewish people. So when Jesus, when he brings up this idea of the law and the prophets, this would have gotten their attention. Every single Jewish person there in the first century would have said, what is he saying? Because the law and the prophets were everything to the Jewish people in the first century. And so to help you better understand what Jesus is saying here, let's look at these two things. First, let's talk about the law. Now the law is also known as the Torah. And the law was actually given to Moses and can be found in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The theological word for those five books of the Bible is the Pentateuch. So if you want to sound smart, you can just say, oh, I'm, just, I'm just studying the Pentateuch today, just no big deal. It's talking about the law. And the law actually has 613 commandments. And out of this 613 commandments, 248 of those bad boys were positive, meaning those are things that you should do. 
So 248 times in the law, it says, here's what you should do, but then 365 times, they are negative commandments. Those are things where in the law, it says, these are things you should not do. So in the law, there's all these things, 613 things that you should do and you shouldn't do. By the way, I love that later in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus gets asked, what's the most important one of those 613 commandments? And he narrows it all down to two things. He says, everything in those, 600, those 613 commandments can be categorized and summarized one of two ways, love God and love people. Now, it's important for you to know that this law, these commandments were everyday reality for the Jewish people. See, a lot of times for us in America in the 21st century, we often compartmentalize our religion. A lot of times it's just on this day of the week. And this is the only time we think about it. It's the only time that we really think about the things of God. But that wasn't true for the first century Jews. Like this was, this was everyday reality. These 613 commandments were about everything, not just about spiritual churchy things. The law literally impacted every single area of their life. But here was the major problem. Nobody, not one person had the ability to keep the entire law. Not one person was good enough and like detailed enough and disciplined enough to be able to keep all 613 of those laws. So every time they, brought, they broke the law, one of those commandments, they would have to be right with God. And how they would do that is that they would go to a priest and that the priest would sacrifice an animal to pay for that sin so that they could be right with God. It's almost like every time they, they made a mistake, it created a deficit or a debt with God that they had to come and then pay for that one thing so that they could temporarily be okay with God. And then that cycle would repeat over and over and over and over again because they'd keep making a mistake, have to make it right. Make a mistake, make it right. They would have to do this over and over and over again. So you may ask like, what is the purpose of the law. Now the purpose was very simple. The purpose of the law, and it still is this purpose when you read it today. The purpose of the law is to reveal our sin and our need for a savior. That is the whole purpose behind the law. It is to reveal our sin and our need for a savior. In other words, listen, the law is like a mirror that you hold it up to yourself so that you can see, oh, I'm a sinner. That is the purpose of the law. It's a mirror that tells us all the ways that we mess up, all the ways that we're not good enough to save ourselves and that we desperately need a savior to do what we cannot do ourselves. The New Testament actually talks about this. Let me show you a few examples. Romans chapter three, verse 20, it says that the law simply shows us how sinful we are. Romans chapter seven, verse seven says, it is the law that showed me my sin. And so Jesus, he first brings up this idea of the law, but then he brings up this idea of the prophets and the prophets, which really is, if the, the law is the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets is the back half of the Old Testament. It's after all the history books, it's the back half of the Old Testament and it's broken down into two categories. There are major prophets and minor prophets. 
Now, that, that doesn't mean like varsity and JV. It doesn't mean like, oh, these are good ones and these are bad ones. Major prophets are just mean they're bigger. So they're the bigger prophecy books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then there's minor prophets, which are the really small little small prophecy books, things like Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah. And so those are the, the major and minor prophets. And these prophets, books of the Bible, they usually have one of two messages. And if you've ever read through that part of the Bible, you probably get these two messages. You'll read them over and over again. Here's the first one. The first message is get right with God. And so the the prophets, they come on the scene and they say, hey guys, a lot of times they're like, you're messing up. You're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. You need to repent. You need to change your mind, change your direction, and you need to get right with God. And then the second message that you see over and over again is this, hang on there's better days coming. So like, I know it's this way right now, but it's not always gonna be like this. Like it's gonna actually get better. And so let me put it this way, that the prophets describe the future hope for the Jewish people. And that, that in other words, the prophets say, hey guys, like life isn't always gonna be like this. So don't give up, don't quit, don't lose heart. And the prophets reminded them that you can have hope because there will be a day where God will actually send a savior, a Messiah that will change everything. So that, that, that was, and you need to know that the purpose of the prophets is to remind them that a savior is coming. That was the purpose behind all the prophets. So it was to remind that a savior's coming. Let me show you one example. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse five and six, it says, for the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a capital K king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness in that day. Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Have some hope. So he talks about the law and the prophet. So it is a huge deal. Whenever Jesus at this Sermon on the Mount, when he stands up in front of this massive crowd and he declares in Matthew chapter five, verse 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses and cancel it and say it doesn't matter anymore or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purposes. I came to fulfill their purposes. Here's what Jesus is saying right here. And I get so excited about this. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of the law. And here's what that means for you and I. That means in his kingdom, he is the true and greater high priest who has the authority to pay for our sins, not temporarily, not every time that you make a mistake and you come back to the priest, but once and for all. And he doesn't pay with it with animals. He doesn't go a goat or a bull to pay for your sins. He actually says, I am the payment for your sin. And he says, I am the fulfillment of the law. And I am the fulfillment of the prophets, which means that hope is not just coming one day. No, hope is here right now because he comes and he declares that the promised savior and the Messiah is on the scene. 
That's what he says. And listen, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this in full detail. I strongly encourage you to go read that entire chapter, but let me just read part of it because it explains this so well. It says in verse one that the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifice under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once and for all and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, but, verse nine, but he, Jesus, he cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, our king, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down at the place of honor at God's right hand, for by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. In other words, listen, Jesus comes on the scene and he changes everything. Jesus turns the world upside down or right side up. He comes on the scene in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, and he literally remixes life as we know it. And now, because of Jesus, our sins are paid for once and for all. Now, because of Jesus, we have the ability to be forever right with God. It's not back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's now because of Jesus, we can literally live every single day like Hebrews chapter six says with a hope that is like an anchor for our souls, which means you can go through anything this world throws at you. You can go through death, you can go through sickness, you can go through cancer, you can go through your children rebelling against God, you can go against uh, financial difficulty and stress and that you can still somehow, some way have some hope. That is like an anchor for your soul now because of our king in his kingdom, we are no longer under the law, we are under grace. Smile church, that's some good news. Now, that was like a lot of theology in about 10 minutes. <laughs> and it's so good. But here's the question I kept asking myself all week long as I was thinking about this text. It's like, so what? That's awesome. But so what? Like, what does this actually mean for our lives right here, right now in 2023? Like, so does the law, these 613 commandments, do they even matter anymore? Like, can now, because of what Jesus did and because he's the fulfillment of that law, is because of that now we can do whatever we want? I mean, he is the fulfillment of the law and we are under grace, not under the law 
anymore, right? Like, like what does this actually mean for our lives? And what I love about Jesus is that he just doesn't come and drop a bomb like that in Matthew chapter five, verse 17. He continues to explain it. In fact, Jesus actually talks about this in the very next part of the Sermon on the Mount. And he brings up six specific Old Testament laws. He brings up six out of those 613. And he brings up six of these and then he compares to what those laws should actually look like in his brand new kingdom. That's what he does through the rest of chapter five. And we're about to read every single verse. And I'm not gonna stop a lot, I'm just gonna read it. And, but I do wanna warn you that these verses are some of the most challenging, counter-cultural verses, not just when they were hearing it in the first century, but right now. This, this will get up in your business in the next few minutes. It will be very challenging. And these are some of the most counter-cultural verses in the entire Bible. So let's read them and let's see what Jesus says when he brings up these six specific laws and then what those laws actually should look like in his kingdom. And by the way, before I read these, six different times he's gonna say this, you have heard it said. And that is referencing one of the laws. But then he says, but I say. Let's start in verse 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment, which by the way, came from the 10 commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter five. Jesus says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, we're not supposed to say that in our, work, in our house, in our house, right, Heather? But Jesus said it, okay. Um, <laughs> if you call someone an idiot, you are in the danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in the danger of the fires of hell. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on your way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who, who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. If that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery again from the 10 commandments. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In other words, you better deal with sin drastically because it will deal with you drastically. And then he says in verse 31, you have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 24. But I say that a man who divorces his wife unless she has been unfaithful causes her to commit adultery. 
And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Verse 33 says, you have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out your vows you make to the Lord. That's Numbers chapter 30. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Another translation says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, be a person that keeps your word. Be a person of character and integrity. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's Leviticus chapter 24. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, which by the way, in that time, they could demand that. And the most that they could demand a Jewish person to carry their stuff was one mile. And so if, so if you get asked that, carry it too. See, the first mile is the obligation, but the second mile is the opportunity. And so he says, don't just go one, go two. Give to those who ask and don't turn away those who want to borrow. Last one, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's Leviticus chapter 19. But I say, oh, this is hard. I don't even want to read it. (laughs) I got to, okay. By the way, I do that sometimes in my own time with God. There's times where I'm like, oh, I don't like that. That confronts something in me. Listen, when that happens, we got to lean into it. We can't just, oh, I don't like that. So we press that away. Bible is not a buffet. So it says, you have heard, love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. And he, it gets even worse. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his, his sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, imagine being a tax collector right there. Be like, what the hell? What, Jesus? My goodness. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. And then he ends by dropping this old bomb. But you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. Now I do not have time to unpack these verses fully. I wish I did. But here's the big idea that I want you to see out of those six like, times that he brings up these laws. Here's the big idea that I want you to see that I see as a thread that is weaved throughout all of those 27 verses 
that when he talks about this, please don't miss this. This is so important. Here's what I want you to see. In every single one of those examples, Jesus doesn't lower the standard. He raises the standard. Let me put it this way. Is that grace doesn't lower the standard. Grace raises the standard. And you see this all throughout those verses and these examples that you see. But the truth is, is that a lot of people believe that grace, the fact that Jesus has forgiven you once and for all, that that like past, present, and future, that grace gives you permission to live any way that you want and to do anything that you want. Almost like that grace somehow is this get out of jail free card. That's this get out of sin free card. But you need to know that that's not what the Bible says. In fact, in Romans chapter six, verse one and two, it says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in sin? And we see the same exact message all throughout these verses in Matthew chapter five. Six different times, Jesus says, you have heard it said. In other words, when you go to the law, you can find this in there, that the law says this, and six different times he says, but I say. And he says, but this is what I say about the subject. And all six times, every time he raises the bar, he doesn't lower the bar. Here's what I think Jesus is saying in these verses in Matthew chapter five, because essentially he says, hey, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So ultimately, what is our response to that? How does that affect our lives right here, right now? Well, here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of the law, which means on one hand, you no longer have to earn grace every time that you mess up, every time that you sin, every time that you make a mistake, every single time that you break the law, every single time that that happens, you don't have to give your life to Jesus all over again that if you made that decision, like it's paid for once and for all, past, present, and future. But on the other hand, I also don't want you to take advantage of that grace. Like that doesn't give you permission to live however you want and to be able to do whatever you want all under the umbrella of grace because I gave my life for you and I want you to give me your life in, re- in response. Where, 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 man, like you are not your own anymore. You're saying, man, I'm following Jesus, not what I want, that that is our response. In fact, here's what I think he's saying. I want you to live your entire life in response to that grace. And when that happens, it doesn't lower the bar, it raises the bar. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he calls this the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. And here's how he put it. He says in his book, cheap grace means grace sold at the market, the sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church, as the church's inexhaustible treasury 
from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. I like to say it this way, that we never graduate from the gospel. So if there's something inside of you, I'm just gonna get up in your business right now. If there is something inside of you that right now has a religious spirit that says, I already know everything I know about grace. I'm telling you, you're missing it because we never graduate from grace. We never go on to the, there is no bigger thing that we just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into grace. And he says, this costly grace is the gospel which must be sought out again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You are bought at a price and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is the grace. It is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So if you are here and you found yourself at Queen City Church today, you're watching online, you're watching later on a podcast or on YouTube. If you're here and you're still There's part of you that is still trying to earn the grace of God. That every time you make a mistake, you feel like I've got to earn it back. I've got to go through some religious cycle, just like they did in the law. And I've got to go to church. 
I've got to read my Bible. I've got to serve. I've got to give. And once I do those religious acts, then all of a sudden I'm good with God again. Until I mess up again, then I got to do it all over again. So if you are here and you're still trying to earn grace, or on the other hand, if you're here and you've been taking advantage of grace, under the umbrella of grace, it's YOLO. I can do whatever I want to do. I can live however I want to live. Either of those extremes. Let me tell you what this beefy chunk of verses that we read in Matthew chapter 5 in the sermon is all about. It's an invitation to repent, to change your mind about how you view and respond to the grace of God. That is what this whole section is about. So instead of trying to earn grace and instead of trying to take advantage of grace, Jesus is here today with a smile on his face with no condemnation in his voice. And he's saying today you can repent and start living in response to grace. That this afternoon in your home, in your marriage, around your family, around your friends, and Monday at work, you can live in response to the grace of God. If there's anything in your life that we can pray for, please visit queencitypeople.com prayer. For the latest updates on our church, follow us on social media at queencitypeople or visit queencitypeople.com.